0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute about the Republican Senate invoking the nuclear option. And after that conversation, Chris Fitzsimon of North Carolina Policy Watch joins us to discuss the HB2 compromise recently reached between Governor Roy Cooper and the North Carolina legislature. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. When one party controls the legislative and executive branches of government, the assumption is that their agenda will be carried out. The expectations are different when such dynamics occur during a season of dysfunction. If this were any other time period in American history, the Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch would be about as newsworthy as a three-hour documentary on the proper way to crack an egg. But this is not any other time period in American history. This is 2017. With Democrats vowing to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination, Republicans invoked the nuclear option, reducing the requirement for confirming a Supreme Court nomination from a supermajority of 60 votes down to 51 votes. What does this mean for the Senate going forward? Does the so-called nuclear option mean legislative Armageddon Or does it bring the Senate out of the doldrums of the 19th century into the reality of the 21st century? Joining me to answer these questions and others is Molly Reynolds. Reynolds is a fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Molly Reynolds, welcome back to The Public Morality.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: Let's begin with you providing a, a brief history, uh, if you would, of the Senate filibuster. And what exactly is the nuclear option? Because that sounds so ominous in the public discourse.
1: Sure. We definitely have uh, assigned this particular maneuver a very ominous term. So uh, contrary to some popular belief, the Senate filibuster is not uh, enshrined in the Constitution. Um The history is such that it developed as a little bit of a a quirk, a little bit um, of an accident uh, in the early 19th century. Uh, The Senate was basically cleaning up its rule book, looking at um, rules that it didn't really use very often. And it removed from um, its standing rules, its sort of permanent um, body of rules, uh, uh, the ability to do what's called move the previous question, which would allow um, a simple majority to end debate. Um, it just wasn't something that the Senate was usually using in the early 19th century, and so they didn't feel like they needed it. And we've seen um, since then, um, and particularly in the 20th century, and particularly since the mid-1970s, that this particular decision uh, in the early 19th century has kind of come back to haunt the Senate. Um, and we've gotten to a point where, in order to um, in order to end debate um, on most things, you need um, you need a, a supermajority. Um, in fact, until the early 20th century, um, there was no way for um, a uh, even a supermajority to cut off debate. Um, and a
0: supermajority would be 60 votes, right? Yep,
1: that's what it is okay. right now. That mm-hmm. that um, that threshold has moved around a little bit since the advent of the cloture rule in the early 20th century. Um, but it's been set at three-fifths or 60s since the mid-1970s. And so that's kind of the way that we generally think about the Senate in the contemporary Congress, as this body that... Uh, requires um, uh, 60 votes to end debate. What the nuclear option is is basically a way for the Senate to change its precedent, not its rules. So there's kind of two bodies of procedure that govern how the Senate conducts its debates. One is the formal rule book, and then one is um, what we call the precedents, which are um, sort of a document that fills in the gaps fills in the parliamentary gaps in how exactly um, procedure works. then it's possible to change the precedence um, with just a simple majority vote. And basically this involves um, raising a point of order uh, or an objection from the floor of the Senate, saying, uh, having uh, in this case the majority leader say, um, I think that this is actually how the rule should be interpreted. The presiding officer, um, who's a member of the Senate, rules on that objection from the floor and then uh, there'll be a vote to either sustain or overturn um, the chair's ruling. And that's what we saw at the end of last week, which was basically Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, raised an objection from the floor, saying that the way that we should interpret um, the Senate's cloture rule is that we only need a simple majority for Supreme Court nominations. Uh, the chair ruled. There was a, a vote to overturn the ruling of the of the chair. Um, And then, as a result, we got this new precedent for Supreme Court um, nominations. This is the same procedure that was used by Harry Reid and the Democrats in 2013 to, quote, unquote, go nuclear on nominations to lower courts and to um, cabinet positions.
0: And Reid reserved it. He still reserved the the traditional three-fifths vote for the Supreme Court. Is that correct?
1: He did. He did. And then um, that's what we saw change at the end of last week with the Gorsuch nomination.
0: Um, now, one could argue um, uh, that the, nu- the so-called nuclear option, in, in essence, brought the Senate into the 21st century because uh, there is a legacy around the filibuster that also reflect dark moments in American history. I mean, uh, how, do, how do you see that?
1: Sure. So I think that um, – I, I think – the uh, choice to um, go to go nuclear to change the precedence for Supreme Court nominations is, in a lot of ways, a logical extension of what happened in 2013 when um, when Democrats um, chose to do the same thing for uh, for lower court judges. Um, I think that uh, it's really important to think about the um, closure threshold and how we handle nominations is differently than how we handle legislation, and we can talk about whether we think that the um, filibuster will stick around for legislation going forward. Um, I think it's likely to, at least in the short term. Um, but so. I think one thing that's important to remember is that over the course of the Senate's history and particularly over the course of the latter half of the 20th and the early 21st century, we've seen a real um, parliamentary arms race in the Senate. So one party feels like it's um, being obstructed from getting done what it wants to get done by the other party, and that party uses a procedural maneuver to try to circumvent the minority party, and then the minority party finds a way to respond. in which case the majority party finds a way to respond right back. And so, again, I think that what we saw last week is consistent with this overall story that we've seen over the course of... The 20th and 21st century—that, because um, kind of parliamentary one-on-one um, upsmanship—each um, side responding to something that's happened before.
0: Well, you know, I'm thinking um, in your last answer, I have two thoughts. One, I, re- I recall um, prior to the the the, the vote, uh, the nuclear option vote, um, Arizona Senator John McCain stated that the- he found the whole thing very depressing, and there was no way around it, and yet he voted for. You know the, the 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 nuclear option. So, um, and you and you just talked about this, sort of this one upmanship. So, is this the permanent path forward? What do you what do you if you put your prognosticator hat on? <laughs> what do you see? <laughs> And we won't hold you to that. if it, I
1: appreciate that. <laughs> my, uh, my, prag- my prognosticator hat is not the strongest of my hats. Uh,
0: no one's is, so don't worry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what I, what I will say is, I mean, I think that's exactly the right way to think about McCain's comments, to note that he both lamented what he was saying this would mean for the character of the Senate, but also then, at the end of the day, proceeded to vote with the other members of his party. To change the precedents, and so I think going forward over the over the long term, um, we may well be likely to see um, a slow, continued erosion of um, supermajority rule in the Senate, as we have been um, over the course um, of again the twentieth and the twenty first century. I think in the short term, though, the filibuster is probably safe. For regular legislation, and I think there are a couple of reasons um, to think that. One is that it's in the interests of a lot of individual senators, um, even senators in the majority party, to have the ability to filibuster. It's part of what gives them their power to um, extract various kinds of leverage, even from their own party's leader. So. Um, I think one example of this is in 2013 when Ted Cruz um, was able to engineer a government shutdown um, over uh, funding for the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Part of the reason he was able to do that, part of why he had that power, is because of the Senate's filibuster rule. And so we know that senators like to use their procedural rights to their own individual advantage in addition to the advantage of their party. And so it's, I would imagine that um, there are a number of senators, even Republican senators, who would not who'd be loath to give up um, that right. In addition, um, having the filibuster around can really help the interests of the collective majority party. So number one, if you need 60 votes to get a lot of things done, you can try and force members of the minority party to take some difficult votes. And so we obviously have talked a lot and heard a lot about the 10 Democratic senators who are up for re-election in 2018 from states that Donald Trump won. Um, and five of these senators are from um, states that not only did Trump win, but um, had been won by a Republican presidential candidates going back several elections. And so having the filibuster around, having that 60-vote threshold, um, allows um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to try to force some of those vulnerable Democrats into difficult votes. And the last thing I'll say is that I think there are some things that we'll see coming up on the Senate's agenda going forward that um, McConnell and some of the more moderate members of the Republican Party will um, find it attractive to use the filibuster uh, for political cover, for things that they don't actually want to do in the first place. And so I think, for example, if we think about um, what might have happened had the uh, Republicans Health care bill actually made it out of the House and gone over to the Senate. That was being moved through a special procedure that couldn't that would have meant it could not be filibustered um, in the Senate. And so Republicans would have been responsible for delivering all of the votes for that bill or not. They would have had no way to blame Democrats um, for it um, for its failure if that had happened. And we could imagine, given how unpopular parts of that bill were with some Republicans, that they would have really preferred to be able to blame Democrats for not getting it done, um, as opposed to having to own the failure themselves.
0: So in other words, um, uh, that on that last example, Chuck Schumer would— rec- we could see Chuck Schumer, uh, Minority Leader, getting some anonymous emails. Don't you want to use the filibuster right now? That that sort of thing. Is that what you're
1: saying? <laughs> um, I'm I'm not sure to go that far, but what I am saying is that there are certainly um, there are certainly uh, political circumstances that we can imagine where if there's if there's something that uh, Mitch McConnell thinks is bad for his coalition in the Senate, particularly some of those um, more moderate members, something that they don't want to do, having the ability to blame uh, the need to get 60 votes for the failure of something in the Senate may well be attractive to Republicans on some issues going forward.
0: Now, uh, now let me um, digress momentarily and just sort of ask you more of a historically, a uh, 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 based on um, Senate tradition, I mean, we are talking about the body that, that uh, I believe was George Washington that said it, it was, you know, the framers created, the Senate, the, the cool, the House legislation, the way a saucer, you know, cools hot coffee or tea or something mm-hmm. I think it's worse of that. Way. So as an observer of this process, are you concerned that the Senate is becoming more uh, like the raucous nature that we reserve traditionally for the House of Representatives?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that while I don't want to minimize the um, effect of this change that we saw last week or even the change that we saw in 2013 or future changes going forward, I think there are a number of other really important differences between the House and the Senate that aren't just procedural, that will continue to mean that the two bodies um, – function quite differently. And for me, the biggest one here is just the fact that senators both serve longer terms. They serve six years instead of two. They're not constantly running for re-election in quite the same way House members are. And more importantly, they serve much larger constituencies. They serve entire states. And while some states um, can have populations that look as homogenous as many House districts do, I think most for most states, that's not the case. For most states, Senators have to find a way to balance uh, the concerns of different segments of their constituencies, different populations within their states. Even states that traditionally vote um, for one party pretty consistently have a wide variety of interests within them. I mean, if you think about, say, the state of New York, which has – um, you know, is it consistently votes for Democrats, but the differences in issues that matter to people who live in New York City versus in um, upstate New York are, are really big, and New York senators have to figure out how to represent those um, constituents altogether in a way that House members who serve smaller, um, much more homogenous districts generally don't have to.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute about the uh, so-called um nuclear option recently invoked by the Republican Senate. Um, Molly, Molly, were Democrats short-sighted uh, in your view in that their actions were, were, were fueled in part by the, uh, uh, the failure of Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, um, nominated by President Obama, was even denied a hearing?
1: So I think that um, there's obviously been a lot of conversation about, you know, should the Democrats have, quote-unquote, saved the filibuster for a future Future nominee, and I for me the biggest um, question here was at what point was it clear that um, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans had fifty senators in their party who were willing to vote to change the precedents if it came to that? And once it was clear, um, I think that there were enough Republican senators who were willing to change those um, change those precedents. It mattered a little bit less whether Democrats. Um, Saw the death of the filibuster now versus later. Um, if Gorsuch was going to get on the court either way, um, it was either going to be uh, that the Republicans uh, changed the precedence now um, or that there were some Democrats who voted for Gorsuch. And if Republicans were willing to do it now, why wouldn't they have been willing to do it hypothetically in a year, two years, when there would be a different um, nominee up on the court?
0: Now, now let's really get into the the weeds of the Senate for just a moment. Um, Explain cloture votes.
1: So, um, as I mentioned at the top, because um, the Senate lacks the ability to um, cut off debate um, for most questions with um, a simple majority, um, in order to end debate, what you'll see is um, usually the Senate majority leader file what we call a cloture motion. And that... um, is a motion that uh, that cuts off debate. Um, it takes 60 votes to approve um, in most situations. And the way it works is that the Senate majority leader will file cloture and then that uh, cloture petition has to lie over for, has to wait um, uh, until um, the second, uh, lie over for two days um, before uh, the Senate votes on it. And uh, once the Senate votes on it, if it's approved, um, with 60 votes, then that ends debate on whatever debatable question um, the Senate is taking up, whether it's a bill or an amendment. Um, and then once cloture is invoked, if that happens, um, there's a limit on the amount of time uh, that the underlying question, the bill, the amendment, can be debated. That's so for 30 hours after cloture has been invoked. And that's what we saw happen, for example, in um, uh, earlier in the year when um, – the Senate was considering uh, President Trump's cabinet nominees. So we had um, a number of cases where you remember seeing Democratic senators speak one after another on the floor um, through the night in a couple of cases, and that's what they were doing, is they were using this time um, that happens after cloture is invoked in order to um, to sort of make a point on the Senate floor.
0: Now, depending on how it's used, this could really – it further slow down the Senate, which is already looked upon as the more deliberative body?
1: Yes. Yeah, so if um, if one side, in this case, um, usually the, the minority party chooses to exercise all of its um, procedural rights, it can actually slow down the Senate quite considerably. And again, that's what we saw at the, um, in, in uh, the early part of this year when Democrats, having lost the ability to um, demand 60 votes, um, on to end debate on cabinet nominees, use their ability to kind of drag out the debate uh, to make um, to make speeches um, and otherwise draw attention to the cabinet nominations they were considering.
0: And I would I would imagine though it's probably very easy to explain. I think that the, that the the damage potentially to any majority party is to explain to rank and file people come election time, that it's the Democrats, in this case, the Democrats' procedural uh, apparatus is why they were slowing getting things done when people are looking saying, well, you had a majority. Why didn't you get it done?
1: Right. So I'm, um, I would expect that if um, this, uh, this sort of slow walking by Democrats continues, um, certainly that would be a response. From Republicans I mean I think it's also worth noting that one thing that we've seen in the early part of this year is that there hasn't actually been that much kind of ready legislation that Republicans have had ready to work on in Congress so by and large we've seen um, Congress this spring do basically three things so in the Senate they um, confirmed Trump's cabinet nominees and then they worked on the Gorsuch nomination in the House while we did have all of the sort of hand-wringing over uh, the bill that would repeal and replace parts of the Affordable Care Act that never actually came to the floor. And so um, the other thing that both chambers have been doing is voting on um, uh, bills that would roll back some of – Obama administration's regulations, but there isn't a lot. Um, there isn't a lot sort of ready to go. There isn't a lot of legislation that Republicans have had ready to kind of take off the shelf and really work on. And until they can clearly point to things that they've been wanting to do, and that Democrats are obstructing, I think it. Um, I think that messaging about Democratic slow walking will be less persuasive. But I think we'll uh, will have to pay attention to that in the in the months to come.
0: Um, what in your view yeah. represents or is there any potential downside um, for the Republican Senate um, to by invoking this uh, latest nuclear option?
1: So I think that um, in the sense that um, it marks another step in kind of the parliamentary arms race, um, I think there are reasons to believe that um, in the future uh, Republicans might regret having kind of one-upped uh, Democrats. But I think at the end of the day, again, because what we've seen over the course of recent history is a real sort of tit for tat. One side does something, the other side responds. And it was clearly a very big political priority for Republicans to get Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. So we um, we know that uh, a year ago, uh, McConnell made this choice to go full obstruction on Merrick Garland to really wait until there was. Um, a prospective Republican president to get, uh, to get a new Supreme Court justice on the, on the bench. We know that uh, judicial nominations are a really important issue for a lot of Republican-based voters, and so given the kind of political importance of getting Gorsuch on the bench and getting this, um, this achievement, I don't, um, I don't expect that, at least in the short term, Republicans are going to regret having done what they did.
0: And and given your expertise um, in in this area, in your view, how radically does this change democracy on Capitol Hill?
1: So, um, again, I think that it's just sort of another step in a long process, and I don't want to I don't want to minimize the um, the decision, Uh, and I think that it it will certainly have effects for how um, future. Supreme Court nominations um, are considered, but I think that we should really sort of consider it in a much broader context and a much broader um, history of um, each side kind of slowly taking steps um, to respond to things that the other side has done. And I think it's also important to note that uh, the inability of the two sides to come to some sort of agreement to prevent this from happening is also consistent with kind of a broader breakdown in the ability of senators to work together. Um, you know, We heard some discussion um, about the possibility of a, a gang of 14 type um, solution where some Democrats and some Republicans got together to work out a deal that obviously didn't happen. And I think that, so in that case, I think that what we are seeing is a little bit more of a symptom um, of broader changes in the Senate than it is um, a, a major cause of anything, at least at this point. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what I'll be paying attention to going forward.
0: And finally, you would certainly agree that there, the Democrats, uh, I'll pick on Democrats uh, momentarily, but Democrats were far more upset about Mitch McConnell invoking this portion of the nuclear option than, say, Harry Reid, than they were in Harry Reid in 2013. And it, it, isn't that sort of affect part of the problem? So as long as my side does it, I can understand it, nuance it. The other side does it, it's problematic, which is sort of a continuation of. No,
1: absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that in general, when we hear senators talk about procedure and about changes to the rules. Um, regardless of what rhetoric they use, it's very rarely actually about kind of principle and the principled stand on where the institution is. And it's much more frequently about politics and kind of what are the outcomes that changing the rules and the precedents would get me that I can't get under the current um, set of rules and precedents. And so, again, this goes back to my point about just how important getting Gorsuch on the court was for Republicans. I think that kind of Given how uh, given how salient this was for them and their voters, I, I think that it was really um, uh, uh, I think it was a sort of a big um, a big goal for them and just a need to um, to accomplish this. And so once that once that became true, um, they were willing to um, to make this change in order to get that done.
0: Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute, thank you for once again being on the public morality today. That was Molly Riddles. Stay tuned as we discuss North Carolina's HB2 compromise with Chris Fitzsimon of North Carolina Policy Watch. Welcome back. Since the passage of North Carolina's controversial HB2, also known as the bathroom bill, the state of North Carolina has been marred by economic boycotts from companies once slated to bring jobs to the Tar Heel State, to the removal of the 2017 NBA All-Star Game, to the NC2A and Atlantic Coast Conference rendering the state ineligible to host its sporting events, the cost, depending on who you ask, has been as much as several billion dollars. Recently, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper and the Republican-led legislature have reached a compromise. It is a compromise that leaves few happy. While some may contend the fact that no one is happy is the mark of true compromise, others conclude there can be no compromise when human dignity is at stake. Joining me to discuss where things stand with HB2, we welcome back Chris Fitzsimon. Fitzsimon is the executive director of North Carolina Policy Watch. Chris Fitzsimon, welcome to the Public Morality. Well, thanks for having me. You recently wrote a piece, an op-ed critical of the compromise reached by uh, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper and the Republican-led legislature regarding HB2. Why were you critical?
2: Well, I was disappointed uh, because I think uh, there's a, a, especially with one provision, I had trouble with many of the provisions, but one of the provisions in the compromise uh, bans local governments in North Carolina from providing non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people for four years until basically almost four years, the end of 2020. So, you think about that for a second. That means that the city of Charlotte cannot tell employers that they can't fire someone simply because they're gay, or they can't tell a they can't make it a regulation in Charlotte that hotels can't deny uh, hotel rooms to gay or bisexual people, that uh, those, those people will have no protections from discrimination. Uh, and what's fascinating about that 19 states have a statewide protection for gay and lesbian people that prevent them from being fired or denied services, uh, but 47 states either have a statewide protection or they allow local governments to provide them themselves. So we are one of only three states that it's, it's actually a state policy, that you cannot protect people from discrimination. Another way to think about it is we have a state policy that allows people to literally be fired from their jobs because they're gay.
0: Well, you know, well, that was actually one of the things that while much was made about the bathroom portion of HB2, um, it was also unique in that there was really, uh, my words, not yours, a sweeping overreach into the affairs of local government, was it not?
2: Absolutely, it's completely. Uh, there, this has uh, been, unfortunately, a pattern of this general assembly. But you're exactly right. It, take, it takes a lot of power away from local governments. And conservatives used to tell us in, in North Carolina and elsewhere that the power, cl- the, the, the government closest to the people knows best. You know how to govern and should make more rules so so they could uh, respond to the wishes directly to the people. They're closest to them, and they have simply turned that on their head with. With this, with HB two and this this new version of HB two and a lot of other things they've done in the last six years,
0: and and, and as a result, I mean, and, and understandably so, that there's a lot made about um, the rights of the LGBTQ community, but but the but the legislation as it stands, it still has some onerous impacts on uh, on working uh, people as well as low income individuals. Is that correct?
2: Well, that is correct, and, you know, it, it, local governments are allowed to protect their own employees, thank goodness, uh, but they cannot pass any, you know, they can't require contractors to uh, pay living wages, for example, or pay a higher uh, than a minimum wage. They can't require those contractors um, to bathe in any certain way, even if they're doing business with the, with the local government. So um, it's it, it definitely curtails local government's power to protect their, their citizens from, discrimination from, uh, working in, uh, you know, low wage, almost exploitive wage jobs. Uh, it re- it really is, uh, um, you know, I-, I think we can do better.
0: You know, you know, you cited the statistics earlier about the number of states that provide, um, protections for the LGBTQ community. Right. Um, but really only 19 states have gone as far, um, as they need to go. So in that respect and, uh, I'm saying this rather facetiously, but in that respect, North Carolina is reflective of the mainstream of our culture, is it not? Well,
2: Sadly. I guess you could look at that a couple of ways. If you just look at statewide uh, discrimination protections, you're right. There's only 19 states, but I would point out that that's the vast majority of the population of the United States. It's, a state, it's the largest states that have those protections in place, but when you consider that uh, all but three states either have that statewide protection or allow local governments to do it. For example, you can't deny services to someone in Columbia, South Carolina, because they're gay, because South Carolina allows, or Charleston, because South Carolina allows those cities to provide those protections. I think state. I think the federal government should do it. Certainly the states should do it. Uh, but until states do it, at least states who are uh, behind the curve in many ways allow their progressive cities to make their own decisions, but not North Carolina, thanks to the General Assembly.
0: Now, with, with that said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, sir, but isn't uh, Senate Bill 2 still on the books as well, which allows public employees to recuse themselves from same-gender marriages or any other couples uh, who want to uh, conduct a marriage service that they disapprove of, say, for religious purposes?
2: Yeah, that that is still. Still in the books, although it's making its way through the courts, and I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna eventually find out what the what the courts have to say about it. I think the um, and I was as troubled by that as I am by uh, this. Um, it, you know, we all this is sort of symptomatic, I think, of a last gasp by folks who want to deny basic civil rights uh, to LGBTQ citizens in any way they can, and sort of refuse to accept uh, that our society become much more. Uh, uh, democratic and accepting and standing up for people's rights.
0: Now, I- I'm asking you to speculate uh, here, but uh, as I recall, with Senate Bill Two, um, uh, that was initially vetoed by Governor McCrory, and then it was overridden by the legislature. Right. I mean, do, do you think that that experience is what allowed him to just sign this um, late at night without really examining the legislation? Um, I'm speaking in terms of HB Two.
2: That's a good question. Uh, I think it probably, uh, it probably had some impact on it. Um, I, think, I don't think he was completely aware uh, what HB2 did, and I also think he was, uh, for whatever reason, either unwilling or unable to sort of confront the, the base of his political support uh, that was the strongest supporters of HB2. You know, the thing we've heard so many times, and I believe this is true, if a straight repeal of HB2 had been brought up this year, I think it probably would have passed. Uh, with most Democrats voting for it and a handful of Republicans voting for it, but the Republican leadership was unwilling to alienate that that's, you know, significant part of their political base that still is adamantly, um, uh, adamantly opposed to he- basic human rights for LGBTQ people.
0: While, while we're broadcasting here in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, speaking to you in Raleigh, um, why don't, would you just for a moment, for those who are listening in, in, in other states, um, could you give, like, the, the Reader's Digest version of, of, of how we got to HB2, starting with maybe the Charlotte ordinance and sort of walking it through real quickly, please?
2: Sure. Well, HB2 was uh, was passed, I mean, the, the Charlotte City Council, in I think it was February of last year, 2016, passed a sweeping non-discrimination ordinance that prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and employment and included... Uh, a provision that allowed transgender people to use the bathrooms and public facilities that correspond to their gender identity which by the way mm-hmm. is a that specific bathroom and public facility policy is is now the is the policy in more than 100 cities in the United States all over the country so the general assembly and governor McCrory uh, were upset by this specifically they said the bathroom provision uh, so then a few weeks later, they held a special session, a one-day session, where they rushed through legislation that became HB2, which went well beyond bathrooms, uh, which banned non-discrimination ordinances in any way from local governments, which banned them from passing employment protections uh, for contractors.
0: Minimum wage.
2: <laughs> Minimum wage. It actually removed the right to sue in state court for discrimination based on race or sex or uh, national origin or gender or anything, age. So uh, that happened in March, March 23rd of 2016. And then the immediate uh, uh, outcry and outrage really across the country and the world, North Carolina's reputation was damaged across the world. There was a story in a European newspaper a few months later that talked about discrimination in America, and it focused on Mississippi and North Carolina. Uh, so after months of negotiations and, um, and outrage on all sides, uh, the General Assembly had a special session in December of 2016 after a deal was made between legislative leaders and Governor elect Cooper. He hadn't taken office then. That if Charlotte would completely repeal its ordinance, the General Assembly would completely repeal HB 2. Charlotte repealed its ordinance that they believe dealt with HB 2. Legislators said that's not enough, so they repealed the entire non discrimination ordinance. The General Assembly came to town and and in, in effect, went back on the deal and did not repeal HB2. That was in December. So then negotiations continued while a lot of economic pressures grew, with more companies announcing they weren't coming here, with NCAA and ACC saying they weren't going to play basketball games here in the NBA. And so it sort of came to a uh, came to conclusion in uh, just a couple of weeks ago when the uh, general the governor and the general assembly leadership, after months of negotiations, came up with this flawed compromise, uh, which Governor Cooper, I think. Um, believes uh, takes us in the right direction. Uh, I think uh, that might be true, but it takes us awfully slowly there. I did hear Governor Cooper speak recently where he uh, um, promised that he would continue to work for a statewide non-discrimination ban. Uh, But really, in some ways, we are where we are, which is uh, where we have been, which is uh, transgender people uh, still have no protections uh, to use the facility that corresponds to their gender identity and LGBTQ people overall have no protections in North Carolina from being fired for who they are.
0: Yeah, in, in your previous answer, you mentioned uh, a number of the companies um, that were going to bring right. jobs to North Carolina that pulled out. The um, NBA uh, moved the All Star Game from Charlotte this year to New Orleans. Uh, the NC Two A, as you mentioned, um, in my view, uh, whatever compromise has been reached was due. I think, in large part, to the NC2A and the ACC objecting to HP 2 um, In light of this compromise, and I use that in quotations. Um, where are those institutions, specifically the NC2A and the ACC, in light of this agreement?
2: Well, the ACC announced that it would, uh, it would, uh, that North Carolina, because of this alleged repeal, partial repeal, however you want to call it, that they were now eligible to have ACC events in the state again. The NCAA released an interesting statement after this bill passed a couple weeks ago that North Carolina had done the minimum required to be eligible to host NCAA events and sort of gave a, I don't, I don't even know if I would call it an endorsement, but a uh, just an acknowledgment that it was passed, and then came back later and said this does uh, meet their standard, which they've changed their standard, but it does allow North Carolina to now host athletic events again. And the uh, – you know, it's we've sort of have gotten to where we have it backwards, which is I think the uh, the original um, impetus for the boycott and come from the sporting uh, organization sports organizations and companies was to try to uh, put some pressure on North Carolina to do the right thing for human rights. And now it's um, we've you know they have I think many of them miss missed the boat and um, and agreed to come back. Uh, Putting profits, I think, actually ahead of uh, human rights and, and losing some of the leverage that we had. But I think what we, you know, as horrible as all this I think is, um, we have to hold Go- Governor Cooper's feet uh, to the fire and, and make him keep his commitment to work tirelessly for a statewide non-discrimination standard to protect people in our communities.
0: Now, as, as a casual observer, I could could see someone uh, look at this agreement reach and say, "Well, you know, Chris." Compromise is the nature of politics. No one ever gets what they want fully. How would you respond to such a charge?
2: I would say that that's true, uh, but on some things. When well, you're talking about taxes or um, you know education or where to, where to build a highway, but when you're literally talking about somebody being fired from their job or denied access to things that most of us have access to, civil rights cannot be compromised. Um, so I'm disappointed uh, I mean, I'm happy as a North Carolinian that we that, that some of the economic damage will be lessened because I want folks to have jobs and I want our state to have a good economy. But I also believe everybody in North Carolina deserves the same protections regardless of their sexual orientation. And it's, it's kind of shocking that we're still having this debate in 2017 about whether or not uh, because of who someone loves or who they marry that they could lose their job or not have access to the same services that everybody else in the state has. So, Uh, I don't think there's uh, uh, that civil rights or basic human rights should be up for uh, certainly shouldn't be up for a vote and shouldn't be up, you know, shouldn't be compromised. Um, I think we're going to look back on this whole saga at some point in our history and realize, just as we have with the civil rights movement, uh, that uh, it took far too long, it was far too uh, difficult to achieve just literally basic protections for everybody in our state.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Chris Fitzsimon, executive director of North Carolina Policy Watch. You know, and, and Chris, um, I mean, historically, to, to, to your point about looking back on this in the civil rights movement and looking back on, on in this particular chapter of our history, it has always been oxymoronic to compromise basic human rights of a particular group. Given the current po- politics, what could Governor Cooper have done in lieu of this compromise, in your view?
2: Well, that's a good question. And, you know, it is important to remember that, uh, as offensive as it is that we're compromising civil rights, the Republicans uh, have a supermajority in the General Assembly. Uh, uh, They have veto proof, which means they have veto proof majorities, which means that, you know, basically nothing can happen unless Republican legislative leaders make it happen. I think his only other choice, which is the same one that he has now, I think, is to take the case to the people of North Carolina more aggressively. Uh, and really, let's have, a, let's have a big statewide discussion about it. I think if, uh, if Governor Cooper, uh, you know, the bully pulpit is something that people always underestimate, that uh, if Senator Berger or Speaker Moore, President Pro Tem Phil Berger or Speaker Tim Moore, go out of their home districts or go out of Raleigh, a lot of people don't know them around the state, but everybody knows who the governor is, and he can, I think he has tremendous influence on public opinion, access to the media and other things, and I, would, I had hoped, and I still have hope, that he will use that power and visibility uh to make the case that we need to do better uh in protecting people's basic civil rights and I uh I think he needs to to uh be very simple about it and two of the easiest messages to me are we're one of only three states that either don't protect uh people's rights or don't allow local governments to protect them number one and number two that we cannot in 2017 allow people to be blatantly discriminated against fired or denied services because of who they are that's just what, not what North Carolina should be. And I think the majority, I'm confident, I'm overwhelmingly confident that the majority of people in North Carolina would agree with that. Uh, and then he needs to point out why it's not happening now. And, and the, uh, the people at some point have to rise up and demand that their legislators do better.
0: Well, staying with that, I mean, I, I, as you were answering that, I was, I was wondering to myself, uh, are we guilty as a collective of putting, perhaps putting too much emphasis uh, on HB two for the economic and um, loss of athletic events as is as, as the reason, and not enough in this argument about the denial of uh, of civil rights that that are still in effect as they pertain to the LGBTQ community.
2: Yeah, I think we are, but I think that uh, the way you know that what happened initially is I think a lot of folks thought because of the political dynamic, the only thing lawmakers would listen to would be the economic argument. Uh, And, you know, it sort of reminds me of something we all do, which is, and I do it too, which is uh, we're arguing for early childhood education. And the argument is always, the first argument made always is that it saves money. And it does save money. There's no question about it. But that's not why we should do it. It's, It's immoral, literally immoral, to let children fail who we know can succeed with a little extra help. And I want that whether it saves the state money or not. And the same thing ought to be true with, uh, with basic civil rights and human rights. But I think in the political climate that we're in, and given the, uh, I actually think, shocking views uh, of some people in the Republican Party, including many in the General Assembly, uh, I think people sort of tr- are trying to figure out that they want equality and they want equal rights, and they'll use all sorts of strategies to get them, and I understand that.
0: How was it that in 2017 we're still – Having that debate to where that some of our uh, residents here in North Carolina, their humanity um, is not valued the same as say, other members of society. How are we still having that conversation in 2017?
2: Boy, I wish I knew. And it is—it's very disturbing. I—I I, I mean, that's one of the most disturbing things about this: that there are there are people in our state, and many of you know some of the people who are in elected office, who don't believe that uh, you know being transgender is a real thing, or they don't believe that or they believe people who are gay can be cured, or all sorts of crazy ideas and offensive ideas. Um, uh, I, I, that's a good question. I do think, however, one of the lessons from this is I don't think that's the majority, I don't, even close to the majority in our state, but that minority that has those misguided and, and, frankly, dangerous views, that minority is so loud, their political power outstrips their numbers, and that's an indictment of all of us who aren't loud. I mean, that famous quote from Dr. King, and I never get it right, but the gist of it is, you know, it's not just the people who are doing these things uh, that are the problem, it's people who are silent.
0: You're the good people.
2: That's right. The good and people I, that Dr. King talked about, yes. That's, that's exactly right. And I think that's, that's the, you know, I don't know how many times we have to be reminded of that, but it yeah. seems like uh, that continues to happen.
0: Yeah, I think he said, well, when good people do nothing. It's not, right. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what's what's amazing about this and, um
0: Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, we should get you to to do what Governor Cooper should do. Uh, but uh, I mean, these, this idea was actually first articulated in the Declaration of Independence, and that being liberty and equality, right? And that those ought to be on equal footing. And and um, and so whenever we've had questions of civil rights, basic human rights in this country, we sort of push our own founding you know, to the side, how do we get more people committed to those ideas that, that go right back to the nation's founding?
2: Well that's a great question. I mean the first thing is to remind them of it to go around the state and demand that we live up to it. I mean I uh, uh, actually this is one of those things though w- there's some issues that I think people are more complicated that's more and more complicated. I mentioned taxes or, you know, what do we do about education and all the uh, ideas about it and all this stuff. This one is easy. This one is not complicated. Either people have civil rights or they don't. There's not an either or and there's not a compromise. And as you mentioned, it's guaranteed in our fundamental documents or founding documents. And uh, I just think we have to have people who are um, uh, politicians and not just politicians, but leaders, community leaders who are willing to make this a priority and demand that our, our the folks who make our laws live up to those documents and those fundamental guarantees. And for some reason, we've gotten away from that.
0: Well, it seems to me, Chris, that the, the, the first thing that would have to happen is that we put aside what we may like personally for, for these to reach for these basic ideals. Like, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that let's you know, well I'll just be frank. Let, let's just um, if I if whether I like you know uh, gay lesbian relationships is irrelevant. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 there's some basic fundamental ideals here that, that apply whether I like something or not. That's
2: right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that right. That's, this is not a uh, – yeah, the Constitution doesn't let you pick and choose or have preferences or ignore parts of it. That's exactly right. And uh, So I think we've got to get back to the uh, – I mean, that, that seems to be the, the, the basis of our democracy and the basis of a democratic society is that people are treated equally and fairly – uh, and that, thats like that—is the, funda- the maybe the most important fundamental guarantee, and that uh, it covers a lot of rights. And it clearly covers this, that, that people have to be treated the same. And um, we've never been very good at that. And we made some progress, and so, tons of progress in civil rights, although we've still got a long ways to go. And overall, in, in, in terms of just um, people's ethnicity and origin and race, but we—I uh, feel like we are—we have, we have even longer to go when it terms of, when in terms of LGBTQ people.
0: Um, sadly, I, I have a feeling that we will have you back on to talk about this conversation. There's a lot of things in your writings we could have you on for, but I feel we will have you back on to continue this conversation. Uh, Chris Fitzsimon, uh, North Carolina Policy Watch, thank you, sir, for being on the public rally today. Thanks for having me. That was Chris Simon. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. <laughs> And now for my closing remarks. With the compromise of HB2, North Carolina has the dubious distinction of being the latest to fail an American civics course. Too many in the state are conveniently transmuting how they feel about the LGBTQ community with whether to confer constitutional protections guaranteed to every American. Our founding pillars of liberty and equality never hinge on personal feelings. That's too abstract, too onerous, too subjective. In doing so, we reduce America's radical idea based on the Enlightenment to a popularity contest nothing more than voting for student body president but with more tragic consequences. The true measure of our constitutional commitment may very well be based on the ability to support a concept that on a specific issue one may very well disagree. Rights are not finite. Never has the extension of civil rights for some come at the detriment for others. The most powerful argument against HB2 is not the companies that won't bring jobs to the state or the athletic organizations that are boycotting, but rather its violation of human dignity. The inability to see that the 14th Amendment guarantees due process and equal protection, and that applies to all Americans, and that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness can never be held to the subjective whims of those who already enjoy such benefits. No matter how you look at it, HB2, even with its compromise, is a tragic detour that takes one off the path toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is PublicMorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. I'd like to thank my guests, Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute and Chris Fitzsimon of North Carolina Policy Watch. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Wood.